what a person is or a thing is defines the relationship we have with him, her, or it. Um, as a teenager, I worked at Shover's SO in uh, South Enola, and uh, one day, Jimmy was standing in the door of the garage with a pair of vice or a pair of channel locks, and he was talking to him. I didn't hear him talk back, but he wound up and threw him across South Enola Drive, and they landed in the weeds next to the mailbox. Flyers never spoke, but he spoke. I won't tell you what he said, but it wasn't nice. I retrieved a tool from the weeds, put it back in the toolbox, and we proceeded. The bottom line is that what something is defines the relationship we have with it. And who someone is defines the relationship we have with him or her. So character defines the relationship. The character of God, who he is, defines the relationship that we have with him. Uh, the King James Bible says in John 1.18 that nobody's ever seen God, but Jesus came into the world to declare him. And the word declare in Greek text means to explain, or to report on, or to define. So Jesus' purpose in coming is to interpret the person of God to us. So who God is, uh, is the issue in life. In the book of Jeremiah, God has some interesting things to say about his people. He calls them in verse 14 of chapter 3, he calls them faithless people. And um, he goes on to say that he's going to give them shepherds who will lead them in understanding and knowing him. In chapter 4, the Lord calls his people fools. My people are fools, 4.22. They are skilled at doing evil, but they don't know how to do good. In chapter 9, he says, verse 23, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong in his strength, or the rich boast in riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, not know about me, but to know me. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The whole idea of God revealing his character to us is so that we will not know information about him, but we will actually know him personally. So, for some time, we're going to explore what I call the isness of God. Who is God? How does he operate? How does he think? How does he behave? If we are to know him in intimate personal relationship, who is this one we are called to know? Now, you've probably all heard of Moses at the burning bush. The 
very interesting encounter. Yeah, when I wore a coat, I always had a place to store my bite or my channel locks, so I'll just put them in my pocket so they're not falling down here all the time. Um, there are actually seven disclosures at the burning bush about the character of God, who he is and how he wanted Moses to know him before Moses carried out one of the mar most marvelous missions that anybody on earth ever did, the evacuation of a nation from enslavement to the land of promise. I like watches. I like the subject of time. And we're going to talk about God's timing of things, God's arrangement of things, the way the Lord conducts his dealings with his people. In Exodus chapter 3, we have the story of Moses at the burning bush. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert, and he came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. Do you know how old Moses was when this happened? Probably don't, so I'll tell you. Maybe you do. Moses... 40 years old. Acts 7.30 says, When 40 years had expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. He had been in, in the wilderness, or he had been in Midian keeping sheep for 40 years. 40 years, now he was around 40 years old when he's at the bush. Um, maybe we need a little review. When Moses was around 40, he killed an Egyptian who was beating up on a Hebrew man. He, he killed the Egyptian in defense of the man who was being attacked. He fled Egypt because Pharaoh was going to uh, prosecute him. Forty years, we find him taking care of sheep in uh, Midian, and now he's at the burning bush. Now, if you go to the end of Moses' life, Moses, according to Deuteronomy 34.7, was 120 years old when he died. So Moses' life can be divided into three 40-year periods. Forty years in Egypt, forty years... Midian taking care of sheep, and 40 years in the wilderness wandering. Is the Lord directing Moses' life? Was the Lord looking after Moses? Yes, he was. So we have these three 40-year, these three 40-year periods. What was the most important time in Moses' life? If you had to pick a time, what was the most important time? Was it when his mother put him in hiding to keep him from being killed? Pharaoh's daughter finds him, takes him to your son. Was it as he grew up as an Egyptian prince? Was it when he was out taking care of Jethro's sheep? Married Zipporah. Was back to get the children of Israel out of Egypt. What was the most important? 
I'll let you answer that in a minute. In fourth grade, I had a lady as a teacher named Mrs. Hoffman. And, uh, when she was 100 years old, she wrote a letter to one of her relatives who turned 21 on how to, uh, how to pick a wife. And I have that letter. It was read at her funeral by the mother of the boy who got the letter. And um, Mrs. Hoffman goes on to say you don't expect to get a letter from your great aunt Serena. But she goes on to say he's now 21 and uh, probably looking the girls over. Here are my observations. There's uh, some do's and don'ts. She doesn't have to be pretty, although that's a plus. Is she mannerly? Does she speak well? Is she polite? Does she use drugs, swear, or smoke? Does she suggest going to the bar to have fun? Beware. Then she talks about how she dresses. Does she wear clothes that are tight? Has a shirt on a hog? Mrs. Hoffman, does she wear clothes that are tight fit, putting a shirt on a hog? That's not good. Then she goes on to say, uh, does she go to Sunday school? Does she, um, she's seen it over and over again where Christians marry non-Christians. It doesn't work. This invite her to your home to meet your parents. She should do the same. If she doesn't want to do that, there's something wrong. Now, I'd like to ask you, what was the most important part of Mrs. Hoffman's life? Was it she was my school teacher, reading a Bible story every day, students talking about the Bible, public school. Was it when she raised her two daughters, one to be a great church organist, another a great educator? Was it when she, as a retired person, upper years, uh, influenced some Christian schools in the area and encouraged them? Was it when she's a hundred some years old, she writes a letter like this? Was it that she planned her funeral? Who would be the pallbearers? I was one of the pallbearers. She picked who would pray, who would preach what they preach about the text of Scripture, who would sing what songs were sung. What was the most important part of her life? Well, I, I wouldn't take anything out of it. And I don't think you'd want to take anything out of Moses' life. He needed every piece that he got to do what he did. There's no unimportant part. Now, some may say that Moses' time Midian taking care of sheep was a waste of time. It's an unwise choice. Uh, however, you need to know that the years he spent in Egypt, the years he spent in Midian taking care of sheep, he had been raised to hate sheep. 
the Egyptians hated sheep. And the Egyptians hated shepherds. Whoever took care of the sheep, or the sheep, they were despised and looked down on. And for 40 years, he ended up taking care of something he was raised to hate, living among people he was raised to despise. You can find that all out in chapter 46 of the book of Genesis. In fact, you may remember a conversation that Joseph had with his brothers when they came down. He told his brothers, you tell the Pharaoh that you're dealing cattle and you're from Goshen because the Egyptians hate shepherds and sheep, so don't tell them to take care of sheep. Another part of the country. You live in Goshen, you take care of cattle. Moses needed 40 years in Egypt to learn political science and political leadership and organization and law and order management. He needed 40 years in Midian because that's not how God operates with his family. He gives his people shepherds. and Moses was to be a shepherd uh, to the nation. He needed to understand how sheep need care and direction and how they're to be tenderly cared for. So he needed the lessons of Egypt, and he needed the lessons of Midian with the care of the sheep. Growth doesn't come quickly, and growth doesn't come easily. But Moses spent 40 years doing something he was raised to hate because he needed to learn how to do that. Could I encourage you? be more interested in absorbing what you're in now than getting out of it. What do we need to learn about where we are and what's going on so that we move on to what's next appropriately prepared for what we're going to face? God's clock ticks very slowly. He knows what he's doing with us and with his people. God's clock, his timing, his orderliness, his involvement with Moses would lead me to think that I need to do some new thinking about the whole subject of time, about where I am and where I'm going. When it comes to God shaping our character, the lessons of Egypt and of Midian are not quickly absorbed. Now, if people are looking for an excuse to be lazy, they'll find an excuse to be lazy. I'm not talking about being careless, being lazy, not caring about the future, but we serve one who operates with a different clock, a different kind of time different way of developing his people. Every sermon should have three things. It should have something to know and understand. And what I know, I can't speak for you. What I know from Greer Moses, three 40-year periods, is simply that God knows what time it is. 
God knows what his people need to do what they're going to do. Now this week, I read everything I could get my hands on about our church. Speak of us as, as our church. This is our community of faith. And everything I got printed, I read it and I studied it. And there were three words that jumped out at me, just like they were talking to me from the page. Connect, grow, serve. That is what God did in Moses' life. He connected him to people he needed to know. Later in Moses' life, he needed some advice. He got that advice from Jethro, his father-in-law. Moses needed Jethro, but he wasn't going to get a Jethro in Egypt. He got Jethro as the father of the woman he married in Midian. So, God connected Moses with the people, places, and the experiences he needed. So his life would grow, and he would go on to serve God out of that. So what I learned from Moses' life, the 40-year periods, where he went, what he did, how God was involved in his life, talking to him at the burning bush, is that God knows what time it is. He knows what he's doing with his people. Now, every sermon should have something to believe. I can't, can't force that on you, but that's what I know and understand from this. Every sermon should have something to believe. And I can't force my beliefs on you, but I'll tell you what I believe. What I believe is that God does the same thing for me that he does or he did for Moses. Lord is my shepherd. So, I believe in God's guidance. Now, over the past week, instead of or not only reading all the documents I had from our church, I went back over my life and I made a list of 15 things, 18 things, that I had nothing to do with happening. They happened of the providence of God. Uh, after my senior year at Nyack, I gave a summer to uh, minister in a camp, and I was paid $20 a week for eight weeks, and so I was off the seminary with uh, $160, $180, no, six weeks, eight weeks, $160. And I had a month before I started seminary, so I hauled bananas in a tractor trailer out of Baltimore. I'd go to Johnstown or Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Detroit, and uh, backed into a dock one day. And uh, there's a guy next to me, the huge building where all these tractor trailers back in. And uh, I was witnessing to him, sharing my faith. And he said to me, um, I've never heard a man talk. My wife talks like you all the time, but I've never heard a man 
So I said, your wife is correct. Everything she told you is true. You need to go to church with your wife and get around some men who know the Lord. Now, I think there might have been 70 or maybe 100 docks at that big building where they unloaded these bananas and they backed in, they put the doors down so the bananas didn't get cold in the winter. Huge facility. I had nothing to do with where my truck was. Nothing. I just did it. And that happened. I'll never forget what he said. I never heard a man talk like that. He talked like my wife. He said, she's right. You need to get around some men. Talk like your wife. You can go to church with them. You'll find them. The next summer, oh, incidentally, I made enough money in a month to live for a year. Because I lived cheap in seminary, actually. The next summer, I got married, and uh, we did a ride-along down at the banana dock with my friend Fred. Pam went along, met a guy down there, and when he found out I was going to seminary, he said, you get to Minnesota, Minneapolis-St. Paul. You need a job, you get down to the Midwest Emory Freight Terminal, you tell him I sent you, ask for Frenchie. So we were there in Minnesota about two days. I get down to get a job, see if there's a job. Asked for Frenchie. Frenchie said, uh, I told him who sent me. He said, why didn't you come dress for work? Go home, put your work clothes on, and come back. I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> Just. There it was. So, what it did was, I hadn't got my clothes, and worked till end of August. Got laid off because had a reduction in force, first guy, or last guy hired, first guy to go. So I didn't need a job anymore. Went to seminary and everything worked out. But I had nothing to do with that. Met the guy in Baltimore, go see Frenchie, got the job, hand to God. When I was a young pastor, we had an evangelistic crusade in our town. Pastors were to help the counselors if there was a problem. So uh, I was at the crusade and the guy came forward and Counselor was having problems, so he raised his hand. I went over and, and uh, went away, and I'm talking to this guy. And, and he, I said, well, tell me your story. So he tells me his story. He's an insurance uh, executive, and he had just been to a conference. And the guy who was speaking at that conference said a lot of things that stirred him up spiritually. And he goes on and on. He's talking about Charlie Jones, Charles Tremendous Jones. Anybody know Charles Tremendous Jones? Ah. Ask the guy in the back who raised his hand. He'll explain Charlie to you. So after he's done telling me all this stuff about what he learned at this seminar, and he was trying to get himself spiritually acclimated, he said, uh, Charlie Jones is a personal friend of mine. He and I go to church together. He gave him a testimony. I was saved when I was 17, May 11th, 1963. And I ended up going to church where Charlie Jones went to church. So he became close personal friend. Uh, at her lunch, asked me about the last time I saw Charlie Jones. I'll tell you the story. Uh, anyway, so when I said I know Charlie Jones, we went to church together, I mean, he, he like turned white as a ghost. How could this be? Uh, I'm 3,000 miles away from home, talking to a guy I never met before. Charlie's name comes up, and I can tell him everything that Charlie said was true and he probably said these kinds of things, right? Yeah, 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 okay. So I had nothing to do with that. 
I see this as the hand of God, the guidance of God. And all, it, all, we, all we need to do is show up. Just show up and keep looking. And uh, anyway, this man got himself squared away spiritually. And before we left Oregon, he had us over to his house to see a Bible study that he had with a whole group of people who were in a mixed up state like he had been, and he was helping them see the light in their Bible study. Again, I had nothing to do with this. All I did was show up. When I was a young pastor, I remember calling on a lady one day whose husband had died a couple months before. And after we had our visit and I put two and two together, I interrupted a suicide attempt. Now, if I thought a lot about that, wondered, where do I go? Where do I go? Who do I see? What do I do? I'd, I'd probably go crazy. The Lord knew where I needed to be. I made a typical pastoral call and interrupted a person who was about to commit suicide. When I was hauling, um, no, a young man came to me, a military guy, when I was up at um, Parkside Bible Church, an Alliance Church in Watertown. And uh, men from the church, about a third of our church was military, military-related, would send people to see Pastor Dunn. So this guy came in, and how can I help? He, tell, he tells me his story. And uh, after he was all done with his story, I said, uh, well, I know right where Davidsonville, Maryland is. I know all about Teen Challenge. In fact, this is the guy who runs the program there, the guy you're telling me about. Again, he turns white as a ghost. I'm up in Watertown, New York, what, 400-some miles away from Davidsonville, and I knew all about this guy's background, the place he had been, people who he dealt with, and gave him some help at that point. These things just aren't things of chance. This is the evidence of the hand of God uh, working in the life of one of his children. Now, all the rest of these stories you need to know, I was one of five drivers who could have gone to these places. And I had nothing to do with where I went. I just got my tickets and, and I went. And one of my story is, God, stories, all of them, God connects us with people, events, and circumstances so our lives will grow so we can serve them. Just like your documents say. It's evidenced in Moses' life. What he needed later in his life, God provided for him through the people, experiences, and circumstances so he could do what he would do down the road. So I was one of five drivers. Anybody uh, could have gotten this job, but in the kind providence of God, I got the job. So I had been to this place many, many times. Uh, nice horse farm, swimming pool, top it off. They're on a well. They don't use their well water for the pool. Good morning, ma'am. How are you? It's nice to see you again. Sit down next to the pool. Water's running in, and she starts to cry. She says, my family <laughs> thinks a blues of abide crazy. Well, tell me about it. So, when people say things like that, you can say, the thing to get them oh, free is say, oh, or tell me about it. Oh, is less invasive. So, 
use the O. O. He says, yeah, my mother died a couple months ago, and I'm going through her stuff. And I get through these things. I find a pin I gave her, and I remember I gave it to her on her birthday, and we were having dinner, and um, I gave her this sweater, and I'm you know, going through her things, and, and I cry. She says, you already, you already know that I cry. Jonathan Youngman and I were called the weeping pastors of Parkside Bible Church. We couldn't help each other. We were both cut out of the same material. So, she says, they think I'm going out of my mind. Crazy. You're not going crazy, you're grieving. And then I told her about my friend Bob. About 10 or 12 of my close friends died um, when I turned 60. And I wrote something about each one of them on a piece of paper. I've got it in my file somewhere. I said, you know, Bob and I worked together and hauled water. We did all kinds of stuff together. And when I go through the shop and I get the kits out that we together to do different jobs, I remember Bob, and, and I get a little curious. Because Bob was a great guy. We loved working together. He said one day, it's this close to sin for us to get paid for what we do because we have so much fun. Anyway, I miss Bob. So I said, you're not crazy, you're grieving. And um, you go through these things and this will work itself out. You'll get somewhat adjusted to the absence of your mom. You're not losing your mind. Another pool I go to, I pull in, it's an above ground pool. It has a, it has a, uh, a solid base to it, not sand. So you can swim in it right away. You won't put footprints in. These little boys were there. They had the swimming suits on, and they were ready to swim. They were so jacked up, and I just added to them being jacked up. Tell me what you're doing, and, and you know, uh, how many of your friends here are in this pool, and on and on and on. So, then the man in the house comes home, and he comes out to the pool, and he says, you haven't done this all your life, have you? No. I started looking around. Did I run over a bush? Did I hit, hit a pole light or something with the truck, tractor trailer, uh, in the road behind his house? He said, um, my wife said the way you were interacting with the children, you've done something else with your life than drive a truck all your life. Now, that doesn't say anything about truck drivers, okay? But I had done something. So I told him my story. I'm a pastor, and I'm, as I retired, I do preaching ministries on the weekends, and I drive truck during the week, and on and on. So I told him my story. And then I said, what about you? He said, I'm a police chief. <gasps> tell, me. <laughs> tell me about your police chiefing. So he proceeds to tell me that this little boy was his grandson. His daughter injured traffic. I'll get a grip on it just a minute. His daughter was injured by an ambulance running a red light to get a routine test at a hospital. There was no need to hurry. She had a brain injury. So she's in a home. She can't take care of herself. She knows him, but she can't take care of herself. He's raising a little boy. Anyway, he poured his heart out. Every time he goes through that intersection, thinks of his daughter. Every Sunday, visits her in the home. He's a broken-hearted man. 
I don't think he could talk to everybody like this. He talked to me. And I told him, you're a hero in my book, what you're doing. And uh, shared some other things. Before I left in 2020, I went to see the chief. I hadn't seen him in all those years. And uh, I walked into the police department. I'd like to talk to the chief if I can. And he was walking about down there where Marty is from me. And he, he recognized me. And uh, I said, I'm, you know, oh, hi, how are you? And I said, well, how are you? I said, I'm interested in the little boy. How's the little boy? How's your daughter? How's the little boy? Little boy is out of college. Has his first full-time employment uh, in accounting, and he's happy. And things have gone very well. And I said, well, and I told him more and more about, you're a hero to me, Chief, what you've done. It's just wonderful. Carried a heavy heart and been reminded of, of your daughter probably every day when you drive through the intersection like this. Yeah. Any other? Any of the other drivers could have been on that. I, I was the one who got, got the job. Now my last one is this. I'm not giving them all because you don't want the roast to burn. Um, I got to know my customers really well and if I had a really busy day, I'd call them up and say, if they're out in the country, I don't do this in the city. I'm scheduled for, hi, how are you? I'm scheduled for water tomorrow. Is it okay if I come at 5 in the morning? Yes, we'll have a coffee on. You come out, Art. So I cross them out, and I'm in Shermansdale, and um, delivering water at 5 o'clock in the morning. When I was empty, I went back through Shermansdale, and I start up the mountain. I passed Fox Hollow Road. I used, I used names and places, because this isn't made up. I didn't get this out of a book. <laughs> you can tell. <laughs> I'm so wired into it. So I go up the mountain. There, there are fire police out at the end of Fox Hollow Road going up the mountain. It meant there's something wrong. So I get up the mountain, look in my mirrors. Here comes an ambulance. Lights are on. Next thing, the lights are turned off. The ambulance slows down and follows me up the mountain. I'm assuming somebody just died. So later in the day, I listen to the radio, and sure enough, there were kids on Fox Hollow Road. They hit a tree. One of the passengers in the car, a high school student, was killed. So that's Saturday. Sunday, I stop in the giant store and run into a lawyer friend who owns land on Fox Hollow Road. And he and I, over the years, have talked about the dangers of Fox Hollow Road. It's a place where trees are hit and he said, well, you hear about Foxhole? Yeah, yeah. He said, see, he said he has a friend who, as a teenager, was driving a car in which one of his friends was killed. And that guy went to talk to this kid who was driving the car about what he'd face the rest of his life because of what he had faced because of living with this. Okay? Well, that was a good thing to do, that somebody's talking to the young man we survived. Next day, I go in the office. Monday, got my tickets for water delivery. And I go to a pool. And uh, it's a reline job, so I'm going to be there four loads or five loads. And morning, ma'am. How are you? You have a nice weekend. First weekend of my life. My best friend's son is driving a kid was killed. 
so <laughs> said to her, don't talk about it. Or I used O. And anyway, she starts pouring out her heart for her best friend. What, what's she going to do? I mean, what do you say? Usually saying, don't say anything. Make her coffee cake. Go over this morning, see her. And uh, we'll use the food. Make her casserole. She can stick in the refrigerator or freezer and use. There are going to be people coming. You just go and spend time with them. It's not, it's not what you say. Got to be there. Now, three days in a row, I was where I was connected to this event and to these people, perhaps to be some source of encouragement and help to them. Now, I had nothing to do with any of these things happening. It was the hand of God, and I pray constantly for my life, that I would just have the eyes to see what's going on. Just, just help me see what's going on. I have a friend who's looking for a new job. And I said to the friend, well, your loving Heavenly Father will guide your life, and I will pray you can see where you belong. So these words, your words, our words, connect, grow, serve words. So, I believe that God guides the lives of his children, and, and we need eyes as his children to see what he's saying to us by the people he brings into our life, the experiences we have, the places we go. Every sermon should have something to do, and I'm going to give you the do part. I'd encourage you to read a book by A.W. Tozer called Knowledge of the Holy. You probably have a copy in your library, but everybody can't take that copy. Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer, or J.I. Packer, Knowing God. Read books on the character of God. Now, Charlie Jones would say a hearty amen to that. And he'd throw in a few by Spurgeon, too. So, two books to read. Another thing to do is listen to a song song by Marty Stewart sings it called The Unseen Hand. There's an unseen hand guiding my life. Google it or high tech people, you can figure it out. Anyway, it's a wonderful song. Unseen hand. And the verse of scripture to memorize, Psalm 90 verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. I remember I prayed that one time at an Alliance Men's event at annual council. Somebody came up to me and said, did you just make that up? I said, no, it's, in the, it's out of the Bible. It's like at Miss Twiggy's wedding. Pam was teaching school, and the other teachers came in and said, well, they had the most beautiful, uh, the most beautiful poem read uh, in the wedding. I wonder where it's from. Read 1 Corinthians 13. Nobody recognized it. Did Tiny Tim make it up? No. It's out of the Bible. Anyway, Psalm 90, verse 12. Memorize it. Pray it. Let's pray. Father God, it's one thing to talk about Moses as a man of history. We can see your hand in his life. We 
want to see your hand in our life and recognize the things you're, people you're bringing into our path, experiences we have, and uh, the places we go that we might make the most of every opportunity we have to serve you, to love you, to know you, to understand you, and to serve you. We worship you in Jesus' name.